0: Well, let's open our Bibles this morning. If you have a Bible with you, to the book of Kings, 2 Kings specifically, and chapter 17. So you can find your place there. 2 Kings, chapter 17, this morning. In our story of Kings, we have been waiting for this day to come. And now. Chapter 17, it is here, the fall of Israel, the end of Israel. The course to this day had been set 209 years earlier than the events of chapter 17, 209 years prior when the people of God, the nation of Israel, was divided into two nations. So this map that we have used, one last time we'll see it because this is the end of this divided nation. The map of Israel and Judah. 931 B.C., 209 years prior to the events here that we are looking at today, this happened because of the sin of Solomon, David's son, God's judgment. He tore the kingdom away from Judah left only Judah and formed this other nation, Israel, in the ten tribes there. And right at the beginning, that man, Jeroboam, that you see pictured there, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, he immediately set up golden calves, reminding you of the time of the exodus. Mount Sinai, when Moses was receiving the law and they set up a golden calf. Here, right at the beginning, he sets up golden calves and altars as an alternative way to worship God, Yahweh, and he plunged the nation into idolatry from which they never recovered. So 209 years later, here we are. For 200 years, this nation, God's people, have forsaken Yahweh They've become enslaved to idolatry. They've had evil king after evil king. Nineteen of them we've seen so far. And yet through all of this, the Lord has been patient. Long-suffering, slow to anger, showing them amazing kindness, rescuing them, sending them prophets, like Elijah and Elisha, to call them back to faithfulness, rescuing them from disaster, calling them to covenant loyalty, and all the time they spurn him, spurn him and worship other so-called gods. So now the day of mercy is over. The day of God's long-suffering is over. And the time of his promised judgment has arrived. That's chapter 17 of 2 Kings. The account of the fall of Israel is very brief, given without much detail. Let's read it. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, we give the account. You can follow in your Bible. This part will be on the screen if you want to follow there. Verse 1, in the twelfth year of King Ahaz of Judah... Hoshea, the son of Elah, become, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So he's slightly better. Interesting. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, so a new king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea who had sent messengers to sow to the king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, carried Israel away into exile to Assyria, Settled them in Hala, in Hebor, on the river of Gozen and in the city of the Medes. So, that's it. It's over. That's the end of the nation of Israel, in the north. No more, and no more to return. They are scattered. They are gone. Now, the specifics, as I said, the author doesn't give us. I mean, he could have wrote chapters on all that happened during that siege and all the brutal tactics of the Assyrians. We know some of those from history. They are brutal. As we watch again, as I've said many times, these events of Russia and Ukraine and and now seeing some of the aftermath of that and the brutality in these mass graves We know the brutality of warfare. Assyria had perfected it. He doesn't share any of that. Just the facts. They're gone. Now we have seen in the last two chapters the ascendancy of the nation of Assyria. Remember under Tiglath-Pileser III, we've highlighted him. He has brought this kingdom, this nation to a grand height. They're the superpower of the day. As we think of our day and superpower, they are the superpower of the day. So here's a map of the kingdom or the nation of Assyria. There. That's the Middle Eastern region. Everything, everything you see on that map will be under the control of Assyria. That's how massive this empire is. Now, here's an arrow that points out, if you can't quite see it, it's, it's small, where Israel is. Israel's there, <laughs> that big on the map. That's where Israel is that we're talking about that they took captive. We saw that 10 years prior to these events, Tiglath Pileser, that king of Assyria, had come and destroyed the northern part of Assyria, or the northern part of Israel. Assyria had done that at the behest of. Remember Ahaz, the king down in Judah, hired him to come, and he did, and he came and destroyed part of that territory, and Israel has since then been a kind of a vassal kingdom, vassal nation to this great nation. They're supposed to pay him tribute. But when Tiglath-Pileser III dies and his son, the V, comes to reign, Hosea, the new king here in Israel, sees an opportunity to rebel, to revolt, to throw off. The reign of Assyria. So he does. He he rebels and he's has a conspiracy with the king down in Egypt to make an alliance to fight against them. Not a wise move. Shalmaneser finds out about this, finds this conspiracy. He comes, puts him in prison, and then lays siege to Samaria. That's the capital of Israel. He lays siege for three years. Can you imagine? And then captures and destroys them and takes them captive. (laughs) That ends it. Hmm. This is what led to the destruction of Israel, the deportation of Israel. Now it's quite remarkable that God uses Assyria, this brutal, evil, pagan nation, as his instrument of judgment. The author doesn't really highlight that, just gives the facts. The prophets do. You can read there about God's use of this instrument of judgment. But the king here of Assyria, part of their policy, especially under these new kings as they conquered areas, was to deport them. A mass deportation. It's part of their tactic. So they couldn't rise up again. So he does. He deports thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of Israelites destroys the city and deports them. And so on the map there, it gives us some location here. It says he settled them in Hala and Hebor on the river of Gozen. So the next arrow up there, this is part of that Assyrian empire closer to their capital, Nimrod and Nineveh. You've heard of Nineveh there up on the river Gozen. So he takes some of them captive there. And then it says all the way to the city of the Medes. So all the way out on the edge of that map is the media, the, the, what will become the kingdom of the Medes there. So you can see how scattered they are. They're completely dispersed. They will never reform this nation of Israel. Hoshea the King disappears. We're used to this formula, right? We've seen all through the book of Kings. When one King ends, it says he reigned so many years and then his son became King or somebody else became King. There's no more formula. It's over we don't know what happens to Jose. He's never missing it again. He's gone. The nation's gone. It's over. <laughs> now just try to imagine if we were a contemporary of the day, maybe in a neighboring nation, if we witnessed these events, what would we conclude? How would we interpret them? Right, we would probably see them along kind of a geopolitical perspective. Well, this is what nations do. Assyria is a big nation, and it makes sense for them to conquer these regions. That's what they do. They have their military, their strategic reasons. Assyria gives their reasons for it. And we would probably be very cautious about God's specific purpose for these events. So today, when we have international events and political events, We've been highlighting Russia and Ukraine. How are we supposed to read that? Well, there's lots of political reasons for that to happen, lots of history for that, re- historical reasons for that to happen, but we're usually pretty cautious. We should be about God's purposes in that. We can say general things, and we should. I remember when 9-11, for those of you that were live for that, 9-11 happened. We just had the anniversary here a couple of weeks ago. When that happened, there was all kinds of rush to try to understand what's God do? What's God's purpose in that? Remember that? And we can speak in general terms, and we should, and we're supposed to understand those events, but we can't delve into the specific purposes of what God is doing there. That's where the Bible comes in for this event, because this is exactly what the writer does for us. He tells us exactly what's going on. Behind the scenes, exactly God's purpose and God's reason for doing what He did. So, the rest of this section, verses 7 through 23 of this chapter, is the reason this happened. You see, the Bible, as we've been studying, the Bible is not just history, it is history. This is real history. In fact, it's so fascinating. I've shared these accounts many times, my excitement at the British Museum and looking through the the annals there of the kings of Assyria. You can read about all these things. This exact history, the exact timing, exact date, you can read about Shalmaneser V or Tiglath-Pileser III. These are real events. These things really happen. But what the Bible does, yes, it gives us the history, but it gives us God's perspective, theological perspective, behind the scenes. This is what God is doing Again, if you live during that day, you just think this is just nations and that's what they do. No, no. God is doing something. God is at work. God is doing this. And so that's what the writer does. So he gives a brief account of what happened. He gives a lengthy account why it happened. Because this is the important thing. This is what he wants us to learn. Not so much all the gory details, but why. Why did this happen? happen and he wants us to take note to be warned it's what it's here for one of the reasons it's here for so let's look at this chapter 12 or 17 verses 7 through 23 we have here what i call the reader digest version of kings if you don't have time to read the whole book of kings You can read just this section, and you have the whole book of Kings in this one section. He gives us everything. He gives us really just the summary of everything that happened and the theology behind it and why it happened. It's all right here. Now, we've had the privilege of going through all the details, so this will be a kind of a recap, a summary for us. He wants us to get it. It's a very, very important chapter in the unfolding of the Bible and in Kings because it gives us this insight, this reason. Just look there at verse 7, just the first phrase. i put it on the screen. Now this came about, that is the fall, the exile of Israel. This came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God. That couldn't be any plainer, could it? Why did this happen? This came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against their God. That's why this happened. Much more than just political reasons, historical reasons. It is a theological reason this happened. It is God's judgment. This is God doing this. Not just the Assyrians asserting their power. This is God. And the reason is because of their sin. So that's what he's going to say. The rest, he gives the details of their sin. Let me read it. I won't put all this on the screen. You can just listen, or if you have a Bible, just follow along and just listen. This will be the recap of the entire book of Kings here in this one section. Then I'll draw out a few things. Now, this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against Yahweh, their God, who brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. And walked in the customs of the nations whom Yahweh had driven out before the sons of Israel in the custom of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. And the sons of Israel did things secretly. That either reads, did things secretly or probably better, uttered words which were not right against Yahweh their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. And they set up for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations which Yahweh had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking Yahweh. And they served idols concerning which Yahweh said to them, You shall not do this thing yet. Yahweh warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers in which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in Yahweh, their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenants, which he had made with their fathers and his warnings, which with, with which he had warned them. And they followed vanity And became vain, and went after nations which surrounded them, concerning which Yahweh commanded them not to be like them. And they forsook all the commandments of Yahweh their God, and made for themselves molten images, two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire, practiced divination and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him. So Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Even Judah did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. And Yahweh rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nabat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following Yahweh and made them commit a great sin. And the sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they did not depart from them until Yahweh removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. There's the summary of the book of Kings in one section. The Fall of Israel. That's the title because that's what this is about. The Fall of Israel. Here's the one line summary. Here's the major point of the whole text Israel's destruction, their exile, was the Lord's judgment for their sin of covenant forsaking idolatry. That's the one line summary of what we just read. Israel's destruction, their removal. To exile was the Lord's judgment for their sin of what I call covenant-forsaking idolatry. That's why this happened. This was the Lord's doing to remove them. This was his judgment, a form of his judgment for their sin of idolatry, for forsaking the covenant. Now remember, if you remember back, the first readers of this book, who, who first read the book, this book was written, compiled, completely or or finished when the southern kingdom of judah is sitting in exile in babylon the first readers of this book are those and and the question on their mind as they're sitting away from jerusalem the temple's destroyed everything's gone is why why did this happen what does this mean this is why this is why this was the lord's doing for the covenant forsaking sin of idolatry so the writer is very very clear. Now we, what I just read there, we have seen this covenant forsaking idolatry on every, almost every page of the book of Kings. I've said Sunday after Sunday that idolatry is the primal sin to fear other gods. That's how he starts there in verse seven. They feared other gods. That's the lead sin. That's the primal cardinal chief sin from which all other sin flows. To forsake Yahweh for other so-called gods. To reverence, be devoted to, trust in other gods, not Yahweh. That's the primal sin. And the rest of it's really the outworking of that. Now, as I read that section, it might sound a little jumbled. You heard things repeated several times. And just this overwhelming sense of their sin, of their covenant forsaking. There actually is kind of a structure to the, the passage I'll just note it for you. It's not in the notes, just, uh, uh, just so you don't get too lost in it. It kind of comes in three parts for us. In each part, he gives the reasons for exile, a catalog of their sins, and then the Lord's response. So verses 7 through 13, he starts with the reasons for exile, the chief reason being they feared other gods. They walked after the nations, their idolatry. And then he gives a catalog of very specific sins, all kinds of idolatry they committed, and then the Lord's response. And notice first his response, verse 13. His first response was to send prophets to warn them. You remember that in the book of Kings? When when Israel got to its lowest point under Ahab and Jezebel, that's when Elijah showed up. And so we had Elijah and Elisha for over 70 years warning them of judgment, calling them back to covenant faithfulness, but it did no good. So the second Section there, verses 14 through 18. Again, reasons for exile. Now he adds to it. Why? Because they didn't listen to the prophets. They stiffened their neck. They didn't believe in God. They forsook his covenant, his warnings. And then it catalogs their sin again, specific sin. And then verse 18, here's the Lord's response now. It's cumulative. So the Lord was angry and removed them from his sight. And then he says, none was left except the tribe of Judah, that southern kingdom But even Judah followed the ways of Israel. And it seems with the mention of Judah that the writer here, the last section, he has kind of a reprise of Israel's history. He goes back to that time when when the kingdom was first torn away from Judah and the nation of Israel began. And he goes back to Jeroboam, right? Verse 21, Jeroboam set up that initial idolatry. And they never departed. He committed a great sin. And all the kings walk in the sins of Jeroboam. And the Lord's action, again, he removed them from his sight. So that's kind of the, the structure of the book. But it does hit you. You just get hit with covenant-breaking, covenant-forsaking idolatry. Now, let me, give you, let me give you three observations here from this text. And then I'll just draw three applications to close. Three observations followed by three applications. Here's the first observation. Number one, covenant context. Don't miss this. A covenant context. All of this language is couched in terms of the covenant that God had with the nation of Israel. By covenant here, I'm referring to the Mosaic Covenant. What we call the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant at Mount Sinai. We sometimes just refer to it as the law, that great covenant that takes up such a big portion of the Pentateuch. That covenant, especially as it's expressed in the book of Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy is the covenant restated. That's the context here. So let me note just a few things under this covenant context. First, as Yahweh's redeemed covenant people, Israel owed exclusive allegiance to him. They were Yahweh's redeemed covenant people. And as such, they owed, they vowed, exclusive allegiance to him. So before, when you read a text like this, before applying it kind of universally to all mankind in idolatry, you've got to think first in terms of the covenant and Israel's unique status as the redeemed covenant people and how, how abhorrent their idolatry is. If you notice back in verse 7, as he started this, He goes right back to the Exodus. Did you notice that? That's how he he actually brackets. He does it again in verse 36. We didn't read that second part. We'll save that for next week. But he brackets this section by saying that they sinned against Yahweh who brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh. He goes back to the beginning of God's great redemption. That's when he formed the nation of Israel. Remember, he delivered them that great redemption out of slavery And where did he bring them? He brought them to Sinai to enter into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. That great covenant. And he gave them that law, that covenant. And we know the Ten Commandments. And we typically think of Ten Commandments kind of universal application. But first and foremost, those are the the kind of central obligations of God's covenant with Israel. The Ten Words. And you remember how those Ten Commandments start? I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I redeemed you. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first command. Exclusive allegiance. No other gods. I'm the one who redeemed you. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the foundational command, this exclusive allegiance. Again, all others, someone said it well. Every breaking of every other command is first a breaking of the first command. Of having other gods before him. All all idolatry, we've seen this in the Book of Kings. We're gonna see it a little bit more next week. Hang on for next. The ending of this chapter is quite fascinating. We just don't have time for it this morning. We'll get to it. All idolatry is wrong and inexcusable, but it is especially heinous and egregious for God's people, (laughs) called by his name. He pictures it as a betrayal, as spiritual adultery. Really strong language the Bible uses. Now that's still true today for us, God's new covenant people. Our exclusive allegiance. Our idolatry is egregious. A betrayal. So we learn that from Israel. So first in this covenant context, notice also just these couple other things about this context. Keeping the covenant stipulations was an expression of love and loyalty to Yahweh. So the law, we have the 10 words, but then we have all kinds of statutes and ordinances, don't we, in the law. All the sacrificial worship at the Tabernacle and eventually the temple, all the dietary laws, all the holiness code, it's full of laws. But all of those stipulations were an expression of love and loyalty to Yahweh. That's how you live out this exclusive allegiance under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. All of those regulations and stipulations were a safeguard to the relationship. The relationship was exclusive allegiance, but the regulations was a concrete form of living that out and a safeguard to that relationship. That's how they function, or that's how they were supposed to function. We've used the analogy before of our marriage covenant. It's a covenant we have where we take vows and we promise what? Exclusive allegiance to our spouse. And we live that out in many, many specific ways. And we take those vows, for better or for worse, rich or poor, sickness, health, till death. Those help protect the relationship. Those aren't seen as just onerous. No, that's part of how we protect the relationship. So, too, with Israel, and yet they broke all of them. Lastly, under this covenant context, removal from the land, that's what we see here, was in fulfillment of the covenant curses. Remember, this great covenant came with blessing and curse. Blessing for obedience to the covenant. Judgment for forsaking the covenant. You can read about those in the book of Deuteronomy, a whole chapter on those. And chief, final, is the removal from the promised land. That's what's happening here. Don't miss it. This is not merely Israel was subjugated and defeated and humiliated. They were. This is not merely plagues and famine. We've seen those already in the book of Kings. But this was removal from the land, the promised land. That's really, really significant in the story of the Bible. Because the land is at the heart of this covenant relationship. That's where this covenant relationship is lived out on the land. The land was God's gift. The land is Yahweh's. It's a gift to him and has all kinds of significance as the story moves forward. So this judgment is not simply they were defeated in battle. They were removed. Just like God had removed the nations before them for this. Now he's removed them from this land. Now we're going to see more of that next week. So hang on to that point. As I said, a very fascinating end to this chapter. So that's all covenant context. Here's a second observation. Entrenched idolatry. Entrenched idolatry. No, first, their idolatry was all pervasive. They sold themselves to do evil. That's what comes across. That's the effect, isn't it, of this text as you read it? How pervasive their idolatry was. Just look back there at verses 9 and 10 and 11. It says right in the middle of verse 9, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. That's from the outskirts where you would have a watchtower to their cities. Everywhere they built these high places. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and ashrim on every high hill and under every green tree. And they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which Yahweh carried away to exile. So everywhere. It's just all pervasive. They invent new ways of idolatry. They are entrenched. They are enslaved. Now it is, to borrow a phrase from Ed Welch in his book on addictions, he's applying it to addictions there, which is a form of idolatry, he calls it voluntary enslavement. It's exactly, they're choosing it, but it is enslaving, and they are enslaved. Now think, this is God's people. This isn't the pagan nations that God drove out, he did drive them out, but this is... The covenant people of God, the redeemed people of God, the one who has the covenant, the law, the temple, all his regulations, the one whom he has delivered over and over and shown so much kindness to. This is this people engaged, enslaved, entrenched in idolatry. It's remarkable. That entrenchment is seen, secondly, in that they rejected the warnings of the prophets but only stiffened their necks. God continued to be patient. He didn't remove them at the first hint of idolatry. As I said, it's been 209 years. And part of his kindness was to send them prophets, to warn them, to call them back, to show them good, to deliver them. And they spurned the prophets. Remember, they wanted to kill Elijah. They wanted to kill Elisha. They rejected. They stiffen their necks. He's using that language from the wilderness journey. When they stiffen their necks, it's like an animal, right, that you try to control. You can't. It's their stubbornness, their entrenchment. Last observation. Warning to Judah. There's a warning here to Judah. Now, remember, we're talking about the Nation in the north, Israel. Remember, they're split. Israel, north, Judah, in the south. Judah's where the temple is. The Davidic kings have had a much better history. But there is an implied warning here to Judah. Here it is. Israel's judgment, their removal, was to serve as a warning to Judah, a call to repentance. Because they have begun to imitate. Do you remember? They've begun to imitate Israel. We saw it last week in Ahaz. They built these high places. They they keep compromising. And now with Ahaz, chapter 16, they have introduced idolatry. They're starting to walk like Israel, right at the time of Israel's removal. And it's supposed to be a wake-up call. If you're in the south, these are your brethren, Israel. Israel. God is annihilating. He's removing them. There's no more nation. It should be a sobering call to repentance. How are we like them? Oh, God, forgive us. Reform us. Instead, we'll see, they will view with smug self-righteousness. They're getting what they deserve. We're the true people. We have the temple, after all. We have the promise to David. Nothing can happen to us. They didn't heed. The warning. We'll see where it goes. Now, other point there. The author infers in this chapter that Judah will suffer the same fate for the same reasons. So, here again, spoiler alert to the end of the book. Judah, (laughs) the nation down there, they're going to suffer the same fate. Different nation, Babylon, will be the new power. It won't be for another 130 years. They will last longer. They do have some good reforming kings. We'll see that. In fact, from here on out, it's just Judah that we're going to look at, but they will suffer the same fate. And the author here implies it. Look at verse 18 again. It says, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. And then even Judah did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. Not in the statutes of the Lord, but they're walking in the ways of Israel. And then it says in verse 20, And Yahweh rejected all the seed of Israel. That's a staggering statement. If you trace the word seed through the Bible, how important that is to the promise and he just rejected all the seed of Israel. I think that includes Judah. This is, this is implying their removal. It's, it's fascinating as we, as we finish out the book of Second Kings. And we're dealing with Judah. And Judah will be removed at the end. We're not given any theological reflection. Why? Because it's right here. It's the same reason. Judah's demise, the reasons for it are found in chapter 17. That's why this chapter is all important. So there, there's the observations. Now let me that just moves me right to the application here. Let me give you three. First, we we just right from that observation about warning to Judah, it's a broader. Number 1, God's judgment is real and coming. That's a bigger takeaway. God's judgment for sin, for idolatry is real and it is on the horizon. It is coming. So like Judah, We, all readers, are to be warned. We have learned through our study of the Old Testament that when we see the expressions of God's temporal judgments on his people, that those are harbingers of his ultimate and final judgment. Again, that's how you read the story of the Bible. These are harbingers of final judgment. This removal from the land, this removal from God's sight, from his kingdom here. So note under this, all idolatry provokes him to anger. All idolaters will be removed from his sight, his face. That's the language of chapter 17. Now we've seen this provoking to anger before. He says it in verse 11, then down in verse 17 again. Idolatry provokes him to anger. It provokes him to anger. This is his jealousy. Remember, these are his covenant people. Idolatry belittles God. We'll think some more on this next week. and We've thought on it already throughout Kings. It lies about God. He will be rid of it. Because he's the only God. He's the true God. It, it belittles him. It lies about him. And it is harmful to people. We saw that last week. Passing your son through the fire. Did you notice right in the middle of verse 15 this little phrase? I wish we had more time to consider it. As it describes their idolatry. It says they followed vanity and became vain. What a description of idolatry. Vanity, that's that word in Ecclesiastes uses. It means empty, futile, transitory. That's what idolatry is. It's empty, futile, transitory. And when you follow it, you become like it. You become empty, false, futile, transitory. That's what he's saying here. It is ultimately harmful. We're made to know this great God, to worship, to be in fellowship with him. And when we follow after idols, it is to our Ruin. So it provokes him to anger, and all idolaters will be removed from his sight. Those are sobering. He uses that phrase three times in this chapter. Did you see him? Verse 18 and remove them from his face, literally. Verse 20, right at the end, until he had cast them out of his face or sight. Verse 23. Until the Lord removed Israel from his sight. Now he's talking about removing them from the land. But that bigger principle of God turning his face away. No more favor. No more mercy. Just God's just judgment. I just think those are such sobering words. Judgment. God's judgment ultimately is the absence of his mercy. Removed from his merciful presence. Hard to even imagine such a thing. And that's true of all idolaters. So so take warning. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. Put this on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they what they heard him who warned on earth, he's talking about Mount Sinai, the covenant. Much less will we escape who do not turn away, turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Don't refuse him. Ah, this morning, if you were here and you're you're outside of Christ, and you're just banking on, I, I just hope it turns out at the end. I'm not really sure that God will judge. Judgment is real. It's coming. But there's safety in Christ. Don't refuse him if he's speaking to you today. Hear his voice. Today is a day of mercy. God's long-suffering, his patience toward you for your repentance. Second application, sin is all-pervasive and enslaving. This is not true just for Israel. It's true for all of us. Israel is a picture of all human beings in our fallen condition. Sin is all pervasive and enslaving. Sin is not something merely that we do, it's a power that enslaves. In one sense, that's what much of the Old Testament is for, is to show us that. We invent all kinds of idolatry. That's what you see in this chapter. Under every green tree, on every green hill, under every green tree, they are committing idolatry, inventing idolatry. As John Calvin, in his famous words we use often, that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We invent new idols all the time. We are all the time. That's our condition. And in that condition, notice this. Get this from the text. Remember that covenant context. The law that is the old covenant, is ineffective to rescue and make faithful covenant worshipers. The law is ineffective to rescue and make covenant, faithful covenant worshipers. These are the people of God with the covenant, with the law, and it's ineffective to rescue them. Now, the law is good. The law is God's gift. It's part of his grace. Right? The law is good. The law is righteous. The problem is the power of sin, the enslavement to sin. The law has no inherent power to overcome sin's enslavement. What does the law do? Next thing, the law only results in greater sin and just condemnation. For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That all the world might become guilty before God. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3 19 and 20. Do you remember Romans if you were here? This is a massive point in biblical theology, in the story of the Bible. This huge old covenant, what was its purpose? It had a role in history. The law was good, but what did it do? It assigned people to sin to guilt, to judgment, ultimately that God might be vindicated and rescued. The the law enslaves because of sin, because of the power of sin. Read Romans 7 if you want to read about that as Paul talks about what happens when the fallen human condition meets God's good law. What's it do? It enslaves us to sin and produces more sin and more guilt. So when you read 2 Kings 17, the message of this chapter is not simply try harder and do better than Israel. Don't do what they did. Now there's truth there. (laughs) Don't do what they did. But that's not the main message. It's not try harder, do better at keeping the law. You won't. It's impossible. We are utterly helpless to overcome sin's enslavement. And our love for idolatry. This is the picture of the fallen human being. This is a picture of us. See yourself in the mirror here as you read this chapter. This is us and this is where the story is going. So I finished third. This is where we always finish because this is the story of the Bible. Number three, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. (laughs) Aren't you glad? As Israel falls and is removed and as Judah is plunging into more sin, the prophets now, prophets like Isaiah and then eventually Jeremiah and Ezekiel, begin speaking of a new covenant, a better covenant. Again, not that the old was defective. It's just the old had no inherent power to overcome sin's enslavement. We need a new covenant that's written on the heart, a new covenant, a new life. A new relationship to God and so that's where the story goes and that is fulfilled in Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant in this sense. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Remember that curse of the covenant? We're under this curse of the law and Jesus redeems us. Purchases out of that curse by becoming himself a curse. It's the language of Galatians 3.13. Cursed is everyone under under the law. That's what the law does. It assigns us to guilt, to condemnation. Christ comes as a substitute to bear the penalty of our sin, the curse. That's what his death is and his resurrection. He triumphs and guarantees our forgiveness and our justification. He's raised to life overcoming the curse but it doesn't stop there he's raised to newness of life that we might have newness of life so lastly we are given new spiritual life by the power of the spirit through faith in the son this is the new covenant applied we're not left in this fallen condition we're given new life new birth through the spirit through our faith in in Christ alone to walk in newness of life. Do we still struggle with idolatry? Absolutely, because we're not fully redeemed. Our fallen condition remains, but we fight by the power of the spirit and newness of life to overcome. Hmm. Do you know this new birth? Have you experienced this new life in Jesus? Is this true of you? Has Christ taken your curse, your judgment through your faith in Christ you are enjoying newness of life. Plead with you. Come to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if that's not true of you. Let me pray. We'll stop here. We're going to sing this song that expresses these truths as we finish. Let's pray. Oh Father, this is a sobering, sobering chapter and look at the nation of Israel entrenched in idolatry under your judgment. But oh, how it points us to Jesus, the author of a new covenant who redeems us from your judgment and gives us newness of life. May all here be trusting alone in Christ. You made us alive by your spirit. You gave us life. Oh, may you help us to live exclusively for you.